Come on, let's go. By shortwave broadcast, direct from important overseas capitals, we are about to broadcast this moment in our history. Hello, and welcome to the History Workshop podcast. I'm Mary Beth Hamilton. Today, our focus turns to money and the history and politics of financial exchange. How can thinking historically shed light on innovations like cryptocurrencies and on recent policy attempts to address economic injustice? Do people on low incomes benefit from inclusion in the dominant monetary system? Or would they fare better creating their own means of exchange? Speaking to those questions is Rebecca Spang, professor of history at Indiana University. Her most recent book, Stuff and Money in the Time of the French Revolution, looks at the role of monetary innovations in fueling revolutionary upheavals. Those same issues of money, power, and politics recur in this talk, The Money of the Poor, Financial Inclusion in Historical Perspective. And now here's Rebecca Spang. So I am really uh, thrilled to be here. It is an honor and a pleasure um, and to see so many familiar faces and faces that I knew only from Twitter that are now faces in real life. So that's just super. Um, The work I'm going to present is largely new or the idea that I could write a book called The Money of the Poor is certainly a new idea. So the contours of this research, what's going to go into a book to be called The Money of the Poor um, and what isn't going to be in in it are still coming into focus. Um, So I very much look forward to any comments, suggestions, questions, thoughts um, after my presentation, which I will try to keep to a reasonable period of time. So let's start by defining some crucial terms, um, such as financial inclusion. Um, That's actually been a trending topic and an appealing policy goal for roughly the past 20 years or so. It's attractive on the left because it seems to augur some sort of social justice. People aren't going to be excluded. They're going to be included. Um, And it's appealing on the right, or pretty far on the right, um, because it seems to encourage participation in markets and capitalism. So it's actually fairly difficult to find somebody who's an outspoken critic of the idea of financial inclusion, being included in the financial world in some way, um, though it's the some way that's really the devil of it all. Um, So in 1999, that's nearly 20 years ago already, the UN declared 2005 to be the International Year of Microcredit. Um, Interestingly, the UN also declared 2005 to be the International Year of Physics and of Sport and Physical Education. So there were all sorts of really good things going on in 2005, and I'm happy to tell you that the UN has declared 2024 to be the inter... I mean, if we make it that far, to be the International Year of the Camelid. So camels, llamas, alpacas... 2024, it's your year. So very exciting things the UN is up to. Um, So in declaring uh, 2005 to be the International Year of Microcredit, 
um, the United Nations picked up on what was for a time seemingly the forefront of financial inclusion. The idea that by making very small loans to individuals who were otherwise too poor, had too little collateral to be served by existing financial institutions. So we're talking about women in Bangladesh who might need to borrow the equivalent of five pounds to buy the raw materials to weave a basket, which they could then resell, um, or a number of baskets. So um, there had, of course, always been family members or neighbors to whom one might appeal for such small sums. Um, And in the 19th century context, there's the emergence, both in Britain and in Germany, less so in the United States, of credit cooperatives among working class people. So that sort of precedent is there. But what happens in the 1980s and the 1990s is the idea of a microcredit business um, so in its form, in its contemporary form, it's going to be a formal institution, not the casual borrowing from neighbors, non-governmental. And because it's non-governmental, um, a microcredit institution has to somehow make the books balance at the end. So it has to get back the money um, that it's lent. Um, so this emerges in the 1980s and the 1990s in Brazil and Bangladesh. Um, and at the, as I said, at the beginning of the last decade, so 15 years ago or so, really seemed to be the wave of the future. Um, we saw that, for instance, in 2006 when the Nobel Peace Prize went to the Bangladeshi economist, Mohammed Yunus, who's the founder of the Grameen Bank, one of the best known of these microcredit institutions. So... In the aftermath of that, and especially in the aftermath of the global financial crisis, there was a fair bit of reporting on microcredit that highlighted incidences where you borrowed the equivalent of five pounds and for whatever reason were not able to pay it back. And so then you borrowed more to pay back that original loan. And so it seemed, rather than this sort of shiny, optimistic, exciting story about the growth of microcredit and how this was going to make every woman in a village in Bangladesh into an entrepreneur, what it showed them to be was that they had become debtors. And I think where we are right now is that there are stories that prove both cases. So um, sometimes a borrower, yes. Always a borrower, no. Bad plan. Um, And the other thing that's come out of a lot of really interesting work done by development economists and sociologists and anthropologists has highlighted that what poor people need, really any place in the world, isn't necessarily to be able to borrow. It's to be able to save. Because if you're very poor, it's almost certainly because you do not have a regular income stream. You might have the equivalent of 25 pounds one week and five pounds the next and zero the next and 75 pounds the next. So to be able to somehow balance that and patch over the bad bits. So we need institutions for micro savings as much as we need institutions for micro credit. 
Now, the need for such institutions is very, very real. Um, so this is a map padru, padru, sorry, excuse me, produced by the World Bank indicating how many people worldwide have no sort of bank account or mobile money account at all. Um, notice that it's roughly 31% of adults everywhere. The size of the dot indicates the size of the population in that country, um, that the dot is in the middle of the United States is not meant to indicate that it's just people in Iowa who do not have access um, to banking and financial services. Um, so it's not quite a third of adults worldwide, but it's close. Notice the gender differential. It's more of a problem for women than for men. And notice also that as far as the World Bank or anybody else knows, it's one thing to have a bank account or in the case of uh, especially East Africa, say an M-Pesa account, it's another one to use it. So especially in India, where there was a big government drive to require everybody to get a bank account, lots of people got bank accounts and just never did anything with them. So can we really say that you're included in a financial system if you have a bank account and you don't use it? I mean... I'm sure I have lots of things that I don't know how to use, like programs on my computer. So I can't really say that, say, I'm adept at Adobe Illustrator. It's on my computer, but if I open it by accident, I just sort of panic and close it as quickly as possible. Um, so I think that may be the situation with many of these bank accounts opened, shall we say, under duress. Um, now, moving to a context that's a little bit closer to me at least, um, let's think about the situation in the United States. Um, so this is from the FDIC survey. Um, what they call underbanked are households that have a um, savings account or a checking account, but that have also in the same year used what's called a fringe banking facility. That's going to include payday loans, which will advance you money until you get your, your salary on your payday. Payday loans um, end up often with an annual interest rate of over 500%. Uh, other fringe uh, financial sector uh, institutions would include pawn shops, um, prepaid cards, all sorts of things that we know exist, um, but that certainly are not the way that middle-class, middle-aged professors go about um, spending or saving. Um, so again, if we look at what the population is, we've got 9 million households um, that are completely without access to any sort of bank, um, another 25 million that are underbanked. This is roughly 25% of the population, and it's disproportionately non-white. It's close to half the African-American households in the United States and almost as many of the Latin, Latinx households. So it's really a structural factor in discrimination and the way in which race and poverty are wrapped around each other in the United States today. Um, 
when surveyed and asked why they don't have bank accounts, um, respondents say they don't have enough money or the fees are too high. And there are lots of U.S. commercial banks that will charge sizable fees for anybody who keeps a balance of under $1,000 or under $5,000. And given that we're in a situation where two-thirds of American households say they could not come up with $400 for an unexpected medical expense, um, we're really talking about a banking sector that has priced itself out of um, being useful to a very large number of households. So what to do in that context? Um, one response, not just to these data, um, but very closely related to the success of the Black Lives Matter movement, has been the call for, black, for bank black, black banking. Um, the idea that what we need are banks that are based in um, an ethnic minority community and that serve them because the directors of the bank come from that same community as well. Um, it's an idea with a very long history. Um, everybody from Malcolm X to Alan Greenspan has actually been a proponent of black banks. Um, but I think there's an important caveat here, um, which is the recent work, I don't know how many of you are familiar with it, um, by a law professor, Mersa Baradaran. Um, her book, The Color of Money, was published just last year by Harvard. Um, and what she argues, which I find pretty persuasive, is that because these black banks have always been new and small, and because of the limits on credit in certain neighborhoods, because of federal law, actually, until within the past 30, 40 years, um, what's happened is that the black banks systematically have been more prone to failure. Small retail banks fail more often than big ones. So when they do fail, they take down the whole community they were meant to help. So this idea that we could have a separate set of banks ends up being a further discriminatory mechanism, a further sort of driver of inequality and segregation. Um, Baradaran uses the counterexample of the Bank of Italy, which was founded in San Francisco in the early 20th century because Italian immigrants, Sicilian immigrants in California could not get accounts or loans from the local Anglo banks. So they create the Bank of Italy. It thrives. And by the time that Italians become identified as Italian-Americans, as white people, then the Bank of Italy is no longer called the Bank of Italy. It becomes known as the Bank of America and thrives. Mm. So Baradaran's argument is that it's getting pulled into and integrated that actually creates successful financial institutions and real inclusion for members of minority communities. 
So we can take that um, takeaway message from her book. And yet, on the other hand, I think there's a different conclusion we could reach if you think about what happened in the early 2000s with the expansion of mortgage lending to people who five, ten years earlier would have been considered too high risk for a mortgage. So what happens with the explosion of the subprime mortgage industry is that we get lots of people who get included in financial institutions where they weren't before, and then when the subprime mortgage bubble pops, they get excluded very quickly. So there are two very different um, morals, I suppose, that we can take from those two examples from our recent history. Um, so the work I'm doing now, just really starting, but I'm, I'm sure this is going to be a book, um, draws on the history of the past 350 years or so to think about the money of the poor and the separate circuits within which it moves. Sometimes it moves within separate circuits because it is literally a different object. Sometimes it moves within separate circles because it's an object that is meant to be exchangeable with the money of the middle class and the rich, but for all sorts of institutional reasons, all sorts of prejudices, that interface is not a smooth one. So we really need to be thinking about circuits and the exchanges and how easy it is to cross from one circuit to another. So my fundamental thought um, is that in many times and places, poor people don't just have less money, which of course they do, but very often they have different money. Um, I think that's blindingly obvious today when even toddlers know that you need coins for buskers and homeless people. I think it's... Um, pretty obvious today. Um, I went to the Wallace collection last weekend, and I just thought this was so wonderful, I have to tell you. So, you know, it's free, but they want you to give money. So there's an electronic touch screen, touch here to give 10 pounds. But then there's one of those conventional in a museum plexiglass boxes with a slit in the top, give five pounds to support our collection. And then there's a smaller plexiglass box with a metal scroll work around it, so it's made to look like a treasure chest. It says, give one pound to support our collections. So the fun of being able to give a pound into the treasure chest is a very different feeling to the uh, tap here to give ten. So I think the Wallace is very acute. Whoever does that for the Wallace collection is very acutely aware of the different emotional weights and the different uh, bodily practices that go with different denominations um, of money. So why is it that we don't generally, no. I mean, we do, as I just said, you know, right now it seems kind of blindingly obvious. But 
I have looked around, and there is no book out there that does anything like write the history of the money of the poor. And in fact, what I mentioned to some historians, they've really been quizzical, and a number of people have assumed, oh, that means because they don't have any? Because it's all barter? No, that's not what I mean. So I think the reason we don't know this, um, this, this being that poor people often have different money, um, is that histories of money, now, whether they're written by Dave Birch or by Neil Ferguson or by David Graeber, um, they tend to stress innovation and newness. They tell you this is the exciting new development that some Scottish bankers came up with or, you know, a new technology. It doesn't tell you what everybody who doesn't immediately have access to that new development, that new technology, carries on doing. So what we need to do, I think, when we write the history of money or, you know, when we write the history of food or when we write any history is to realize, and of course everybody who's a historian in this room knows this, that history doesn't move smoothly in a single direction. There are lots of different monies going around at any point in time. And I think rather than thinking about an economy being capitalist or socialist, modern, pre-modern, feudal, something else, it's better to think about all economies as being mixed. And we need to think about that, and that isn't an easy way to write a history. The other reason, I think, that we don't know and haven't thought much about the money of the poor, and it's really sort of a failure here of the social historical imagination, is that both economists and the law define money more than anything else as fungible. Right? That's a word almost only used in reference to money, and it means interchangeable, and interchangeable in a very particular way. Money is fungible because, in theory, it has only quantity, not qualities. So imagine a scenario in which you borrow a book from me. So, I don't know, you borrow Pride and Prejudice. And then, a month later, you give me back Wuthering Heights. Well, no. I want my copy of Pride and Prejudice back. And if, you know, you accidentally spilled a bottle of wine on my copy of Pride and Prejudice, I want another copy of Pride and Prejudice. Right? Because they are different books. Same thing if I lend you a cardigan and you give me back a pair of shoes or just a different cardigan. But if I lend you 20 pounds, nobody would ever expect that you give back the same 20 pounds. Hmm? And you know, maybe, maybe I lend you a physical 20-pound bill and you give me back two pens or four or fives. Or maybe you just Venmo it to me or move it into my PayPal account or buy me five cups of overpriced tea in the British Library Cafe. Uh, there are all sorts of ways in which that can be returned because money is interchangeable. It's fungible. It theoretically has that property because it's meant to be a measure. And so a measure has no qualities of its own in theory. What I'm saying here when I ask us to pay attention to the different monies that people use is that money 
does have qualities, as, of course, the person who did the designing at the Wallace Collection recognized very, very well. So the theory that money is purely fungible, interchangeable, and only quantity, and the reality of people's lives with money is, I think, very different. Um, we can take our cue on this from a book that didn't get the attention it should have at the time, um, and it's very much an intervention in social history debates of the 1980s, so it doesn't read so easily today. Um, Bill Reddy's Money and Liberty in Modern Europe. So what Bill's getting at there is that the liberal illusion right, that everybody's a human being just like any other and we have no qualities beyond that um, is that numerical measurement of what is exchanged between persons creates a valid interpersonal standard, at least potentially accurate and fair. But, he says, a price measures nothing because it represents something different to every person. So, again, I think the easiest way to think about that, to make sense of that, is to think about your own experience. Right? If you think about what, oh, I don't know, 100 pounds felt like as an amount of money when you were three or five and then when you were a student and now it's not the same thing money has quality as well as quantities all right so what about in the past why don't we turn now to the period i know best 18th century europe and especially france and britain now Absolutely everywhere. Oh, I forgot I had this in here. Um, my point with this is that uh, statements like this from the Quarterly Journal of the Statistical Society, December 1854, it is a gratifying circumstance that questions relating to the currency are no longer connected with party politics. Um, I think we need to recognize those as historically specific political interventions and not mistake them for timeless truths. They're interesting, but they don't describe the world we live in. They didn't describe the world he lived in. All right, so late medieval and early modern Europe suffers from a chronic shortage of small change. Um, there's a very well-respected book by two economists on this subject. I think it came out in 2000. Princeton published it. It's called The Big Problem of Small Change. Why is there a shortage of small change? There's a shortage of small change because while the king, in this case the king of France, has the monopoly on minting money, so that's why his face is on it, he doesn't have a monopoly on um, acquiring, mining, the metals from which it's produced. And in fact, in this time period, what silver there was in Europe has pretty much been mined. All the gold and silver is coming from the Spanish Empire. So anybody can take gold or silver to one of the French mints and say, I want this made into French money. And then it's the king's face that gets pounded onto it. Now, what this means that it's the job of the mint master. And France in the 18th century has actually several dozen of those. There's like a mint for every uh, not quite province. There are 
more than one mint in some provinces, but just imagine roughly a mint per province. Um, so it's the job of the mint master to get gold or silver as cheaply as possible, and then he can make a profit on it, on making coins. How does this work? Well, you know, imagine, and this has never been true, these aren't the right numbers, but I think this is easy mental math to do. Imagine you can get an ounce of silver for 100 pounds, so an ounce for 100 pounds, and each ounce makes 200, twice as many, pound coins. So the silver costs you 100 pounds, but you can divide it up into enough small pieces so that then you have 200 pounds. Well, if you're the mint master, even assuming that you have some labor costs, you have made a tidy profit on making those silver coins. And that's called seniorage. So mint masters and the government at large make a profit on making gold and silver coins, but they lose it on making, quote-unquote, base metal coins because actually it's harder to work copper. Right? Copper is more brittle. It's going to have to be um, mixed with tin or zinc in order to actually make a coin. So the metal process is slower, it takes more labor, and the, base and the uh, raw materials are actually very, very cheap. So you don't lo- make money making small change, you lose it. For that reason, all across Europe, there's just a severe shortage of small change. Now, to what effect? Right? I mean, there's so many people today who would not care in the slightest if there was never another penny or two pence coin again. Lots of people think, why do we even still have these things? So who is this going to affect in the 18th century? Well, oh, wrong computer. There we go. It's not likely to affect artisans, the bourgeois, so lawyers, um, court officials, clergymen. Well, it will affect clergymen in sort of roundabout way. Um, Doctors. It's not going to affect court aristocrats. Everybody who's got that sort of stable position is going to be doing everything on credit anyway. Mm -hmm. Um, So the more highly ranked you are in terms of status, the longer your line of credit. So somebody like Marie Antoinette could run up an enormous bill with her dressmaker, not despite being queen, but because she was queen. And in fact, you wouldn't have expected her to pay because she was the queen. She's going to be good for it, right? Um, and, you know, if you're the Duchess of Polignac or whatever, you're almost as good for it as the queen. So because um, uh, we've got a situation in which, you know, the retailers are going to extend credit to the consumers, that means suppliers need to extend credit to retailers. Um, That means sort of shop girls aren't getting paid. Everything's linked together in these circuits of debt and credit. 
all of which are premised on the idea that you know, life is pretty much going to go on the way it's been. So if you get something like the French Revolution, that sort of messes with that. But until you get the French Revolution, it's all linked by circuits of credit and debt. Nonetheless, and in fact because it's family responsibility, even if you die, you don't have to pay up because your family inherits your debts. Um, and your uh, and your debtors, for that matter. Um, so who really needs money and who really needs small change? Poor people. It is one of the great curious ironies of the 18th century that it's poor people, not rich, who have to have money. So uh, Dupont de Nemours, a second-generation physiocrat, the physiocrats um, are generally considered to be the first modern school of economists. Um, so Dupont de Nemours, speaking in the French Constituent Assembly in 1789, said, there are many contexts in which only money will do. Making changes, making change, <laughs> daily purchases, paying workers, care of the poor, wages for the troops. So almost everything where you really need to have money is something that's about the place of the poor. Right? He doesn't say paying for doctors. Right? He doesn't say building houses or having houses built. It's the specific paying of the workers. Right? So those are the people most affected by the chronic shortage of small change. <coughs> now, in the case of the French Revolution, we get a further development, um, which is that the, we don't have time to go into all of this, and some of you may have heard me say this once before. The French revolutionaries, facing an enormous debt of their own, um, issue, first they nationalize, I know this is getting very complicated, they nationalize land that had belonged to the Catholic Church, because after all, what's the Catholic Church doing with all that land? They nationalize the land that belonged to the church, and then they issue paper backed by the value of that land. And the idea is that people are then going to be able to give the paper back to the revolutionary government in exchange for part of that land. But it's hard to pay somebody in half a used monastery. So instead of giving them half a used monastery, you give them a piece of paper worth half a used monastery, and then they can give that to somebody else until eventually it ends up with somebody who wants half a used monastery, and it comes back in to the government. That's the way this is supposed to work. Now, because this is money that's going to be used, that's backed by substantial value of landed property, and because they assume it's going to be used to buy used monasteries, they issue it in large denominations. The other reason they issue it in large denominations is they have a whole team of artists working on them to try to make them counterfeit proof. And when you've got that many people and that much labor going into each one, it's hard to make zillions and zillions of them. They're not mass produced, right? And you can see that from the signature, you see it from the hand numbering. They have serial numbers, but they're done by hand. Um, so this is all you know, supposed to balance the government's finances. That's great. But once these get into circulation, imagine if you're a cafe owner 
Imagine you're a cafe owner who actually really believes in the revolution and thinks that the Catholic Church should never have been sitting on all that property. You know, nowhere does Jesus say to his disciples, go forth and be property developers. So really, you're all for this idea. As a cafe keeper, what you're not enthusiastic about is having somebody pull out his bill for a thousand pounds when he's bought even two cups of coffee. So there's a real shortage of money the right size to circulate. What municipal governments, local governments, uh, merchants, some for-profit ventures, um, and also just some sort of dodgy businesses do, is they say, okay, fine. We'll take this bill that's good for a thousand, and we're going to lock it away here in our safe, and then we're going to make two thousand little pieces of paper, each worth half a pound. We haven't created any value, right? 2,000 times half equals 1,000. We've still got the 1,000 locked away here. But these little things that are worth a half are going to circulate much more easily. So it's um, well over several thousand separate issuers of these little notes called confidence bills, confidence notes, because they they don't circulate um, by government mandate. Though the government does say, oh, well, that's very helpful. Thank you very much for for producing the small change. Um, When you think about it, I mean, it seems a little mad, but it's the French Revolution. They believe in liberty. They say, great, you've used your liberty to resolve the problem of not having enough small change. So um, in these darker colored departments, we've got 40 or 50 separate, distinct, little different issuers of these bills. Um, In others, we might have 20 or 30. Um, And everybody who starts issuing them, they look kind of different. So you might have all of these things in circulation. Um, Note what's going to make them valuable. Well, if you're in Montmorency and you see that it's been signed by these people whose names you know, you say, yeah, okay, I know them. They're good for that. Or um, here in Lerle, not only is it signed by somebody who you may or may not know, it's got these funny characters around it that must make it magic and special. Um, I've asked lots of friends who read Hebrew. They say, this is just total gibberish. He's got got most of the characters upside down and sideways. Um, But it doesn't matter because clearly this was a typesetter who had a set of Hebrew types. And he was like, okay, well, we'll put these on for for good measure. Uh So you're in Nîmes, and the city seal is a crocodile. Well, it's got a crocodile on it. Okay, that's got to be good for it. So all of them have their own local kind of value. Right? This one, I can't really make out the signature, but here it says mayor. Right? So it's been signed by the mayor. So as long as they stay in their own local neighborhood, they circulate pretty easily. Right? Because they refer to things that are known there. The problem that arises, go back to my map of France, is in April 1792, 
when France declares war first on Austria and then eventually on almost all of Europe, um, and we've got volunteer soldiers going to defend the fatherland. In doing so, they travel from here, say, to here or up there. And when they get there, they go into the pub and they want a beer or a glass of wine. And what they have is one of these issued in their local neighborhood. And the innkeeper says, I've never seen that before. So we've got a problem where men who have traveled, and a few women, who have traveled enormous distances to help the nation are being told that their money is not national. Because indeed, it wasn't. It's only going to be after this produces repeated violence between the army and local shopkeepers all around France, and also after one of the biggest issuers of these turns out to have been a total con and absconds to London, does the central government, at that point very weak, fighting both an international war and a civil war, says, hold on, wait a minute, it occurs to us, we're the government, we're the only ones making the money, get that stuff out of circulation. And so if you're a shopkeeper or an innkeeper somewhere where there were 40 or 50 different varieties circulating, you then have barely three months to try to get all of the different bills you have back to the issuer and ask them to give you national money in exchange, which in most cases they can't because there's still a real shortage of small change issued on the national level. So this is a case where the freedom to let um, so many different entities create their own small change, money of the poor, um, flourishes on a local level, doesn't work on a national level, and it will, of course, be the people for whom these small denomination bills, so 15 sous, 10 sous, 3 livres, make up the greatest percentage of their holdings who are going to be most severely affected. Right? If you're, I don't know, a general and you happen to have a couple of these in your pocket, you also have a lot of national money that isn't going to be demonetized by the government. Now, we can also look, I hope I haven't been talking too long, we can also, so in the end, this is what the, the central government wants to get at, something perfectly uniform. We can also look at something very similar that happened in the British case. In Britain as well, there's a chronic shortage of small change throughout the 17th and 18th century. And in the late 18th century, this has happened at several other periods as well, um, but these are particularly nice objects and they're issued in particularly large quantities. We get lots of different especially large businesses, um, so mining companies and ironworks, issuing their own small change. Um, uh, so a uh, half penny from the Carmarthen Ironworks in South Wales, um, another uh, Welsh one, there were 
so many of these made. For all I know, somebody in this room has one of these. Um, it says, um, we promised to pay the bearer one penny, but they basically circulated like pennies throughout most of northern Wales. Um, the crisis in the British case, where we've got all of these different things circulating, is eventually resolved um, by a technological development. Um, Matthew Bolton, who's on the 50-pound note, um, at Soho, who's one of the great innovators in the making of metal buttons, uh, metal toys, quote-unquote, also develops a steam-powered press that works for minting coins. And in fact, Bolton also minted um, sort of token coins showing various scenes in the French Revolution that were imported into France and used as small change in the 1790s. So Bolton is trying very hard to corner the copper and copper alloy um, ma coin manufacture business on both sides of the channel. Um, his technology is good enough that the British Crown then gives him the contract in 1797 for minting pennies, and he makes millions of these so-called cartwheel pennies, um, which weigh, I think, like almost ten times as much as a current penny. I mean, they're big things. That's why they're called cartwheels. Um, now, the, the moral that uh, one interesting book takes from this, uh, where am I? Right, George Selgin's book, um, Good Money, Birmingham Button Makers, The Royal Mint, and the Beginnings of Modern Coinage. The moral that Selgin takes from this is that we should leave it up to the private sector to make the money of the poor. That, after all, it wasn't George III's government that was interested in figuring out how to manufacture copper coinage cheaply and efficiently. It was a businessman who wanted to get the contract. Mm -hmm. So Selgin is actually, he describes himself as a recovering academic, um, and he's closely affiliated with the Cato Institute and other libertarian think tanks in the United States. Um, I'm going to take a somewhat different um, moral from this story. Um, I want to suggest that what really matters isn't where the new technology comes from. The technology can come from the private or the public sector. Because what really matters, and certainly we see lots of innovation in the private sector today, all right. So, again, M-Pesa has been completely transformative for people in Kenya, and that's completely private sector. But what it's done is it's given Safaricom a near-total monopoly on money in Kenya. So what really matters, I think, in terms of the success of the British story and the sort of mess of the French one is less to do with the technology per se and more to do with the legal and regulatory structure. Um, because what happens in the French case is the commitment to liberty ends up 
deregulating. And in that sort of situation, power differentials really are going to matter. And so it's the poor people who end up suffering. So um, what I want to suggest is, and I'm getting close to a conclusion now, is that studying the money of the poor, like all monetary history, reminds us that all money has always been and will always be both something physical and a cultural abstraction. That's true even of cryptocurrencies. You cannot have cryptocurrency without electricity. If you've seen any of the photos of the banks of computers used to, quote-unquote, mine Bitcoin, that is a big physical presence um, and perhaps not a sustainable one. Um, So um, the ideal of the gold standard, like um, recommendations that I've read in the archives, that any problem with the money in France in the 1790s would be resolved if we just made it out of silk and put threads in distinctive colors. Yeah, that would be really labor-intensive. Um, but that idea. Or um, the fantasy um, propounded by Dave Birch that maybe we could live in a world with multiple privately issued currencies, like Bitcoin, Brixton Pound, Boots Loyalty Points, Frequent Flyer Miles, and we could just, like, our, our telephone would know what the going exchange rate was between those. That, to me, is still part of a process of trying to externalize trust, putting our trust in things and not in people and not in society. Fundamentally, though, money is a technology of social trust, a trust that tomorrow... It's going to be kind of, sort of, around the corners, like yesterday. So what we see in the case of the French Revolution, um, which we might just as well call the French Civil War, um, is a state that, in the name of liberty and from its fundamental illegitimacy in the eyes of many, did not enforce or write legal tender laws. And at the end, it was the rich who were writing contracts that said, and the rent must be paid in gold and silver coins of a certain weight and no other way. And then this is my favorite part of these clauses in the contract. Regardless of whatever laws any government in the future may pass. All right? So I don't care if some government in the future says paper is money. It's not going to apply to my contract. It's the rich who write contracts with that clause. It's the poor in 1796 who are left with stacks and stacks of paper. Now, don't think that the situation in Britain remains fixed and fine because Matthew Bolton invented the steam press for making coins. In fact, um, under British law, um, uh, pennies were only good, they were only legal tender, (coughs) up to six pence. After that, Shopkeepers weren't required to accept them. Tax collectors would not accept them. And if we had time to carry this history into the 19th century, we would find that in a period historians usually associate with money's growing abstraction, the increased use of bank bills, the eventual emergence of the so-called classical gold standard, 
at exactly that time, we have tens of thousands of agricultural workers all across the south of uh, Britain who are being paid in kind. And we have at least as many people, probably more, who are being paid in scrip that can only be used as a company store somewhere in a mining town in Wales, Scotland, or the north um, of England. Um, this is, of course, also very true in Appalachia, um, in the Dutch peat industry, in the fisheries of Labrador and Newfoundland. And if we sort of expand to think about sharecropping in the American South after the American Civil War, what we see is a 19th century where the history of the money of the poor looks very, very different um, from the history we have. Um, in final conclusion, um, perhaps I'll just end by noting that the rhetoric of financial inclusion is generally a rhetoric of consumer and entrepreneurial independence, the kind of financial literacy advocated by the World Bank or its consultative group for assisting the poor, um, which has funding from the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. They teach the skills of personal finance. Those are really important skills to have. Like you should be able to balance a checkbook. You should not borrow money that you cannot reasonably expect to repay. If you're an individual, if you're a household, if you have to pay for that money. But all that does, I worry, is make it harder and harder to think about public finance. And as we all know, having lived through various kinds of austerity regimes, mistaking the logic of private finance for that of public finance makes it harder and harder to think about what the public good might be. Teaching us all how to be financially literate in terms of personal finance, I suspect, leaves us all, um, as Karl Marx wrote 150 years ago, sort of potatoes in a sack without any sense of a collective shared common good that we could actually achieve with public money, which works in a very, very different way. But that's a topic for another talk. Thank you very much. Many thanks to Rebecca Spang, to the Raphael Samuel History Center who supported this event, and to Birkbeck College who hosted it. Please visit our website, historyworkshop.org.uk. You can find us on Twitter at HistoryWO and on Facebook and Instagram as History Workshop. This is the History Workshop Podcast. I'm Mary Beth Hamilton. Thanks for listening.